I'm Andrea, one of the hosts of the Voice of San Diego podcast. Every week, I get together with the other editors at Voice and explain the news that matters in San Diego. Elections, politics, law enforcement, big investigations, and some fun stuff. The great palm tree debate, ranked choice voting, bike lane mania. It's great journalism and a lot of fun. Every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's Voice of San Diego. Welcome back to the Vamp Storytelling Showcase on this late summer afternoon from everybody here at So Say We All in San Diego, California. We're doing part two of Neighborhood Watch today with three storytellers hoping to wow you. The first of which is a good friend of mine and a great teaching artist we've been lucky to put into many a classroom over the years. Dilate your ears all the way open for Ryan Hicks and his piece, The Alley Man. Tap, tap, tap was the sound on the window of the house in the neighborhood that was supposed to be safe, creating the first set of fingerprints on the outside of the glass from the alley that was dirty, filled with garbage and weeds and waste and him, pacing up and down, back and forth all night while everyone rests and sleeps and dreams. Tap, tap, tap is what my little sister and I heard over the hum of the television, the glow of the nightlight, the stillness of security, freezing our bones, calling to attention the light, thin hairs on our soft bodies, stunting our organs, squeezing our guts, pure fear in the fortress of peace. Tap, tap, tap. We turned to see a man staring in at us. The window was high up, but he filled the entire frame. Long, wiry hair, balding on top, dusty wrinkles scarring his cheeks and forehead, crooked glasses over prying eyes. He was breathing heavily onto the glass, creating a mini mushroom cloud of condensation, hot and wet, appearing and disappearing, a fast healing wound. Our eyes met his for just a moment, a flash of penetration, his leering gaze full of blood and cum and desperation and control held us paralyzed and then released. The house filled with the pitter-patter of our tiny feet, normally reserved for playtime, frantically running past barely locked doors and open windows to the master bedroom where mom and dad had been jolted awake by terrified cries bouncing through the halls and off the ceiling the rabid electricity of threat. I usually took care of my sister, but as we ran from those wide open, bloodshot eyes, all I could think of was escape. It was the first time I was truly afraid. Our parents lied to our faces and we believed them. Everything's okay. It was probably just an accident. There's nothing to worry about. Comfort is short-lived. Embrace is temporary. Damage is done. This happened when I was 10 years old. We had just moved into our upper middle class West Texas suburb. The block meeting the neighbors held was for us to tell us what they knew, which wasn't much. The alley man had visited once before to several houses, but only the families living on the west side of the street. 
It started with the lights. Every once in a while, many of the outside garage and porch lights would turn off, not because they had burned out, because they'd been unscrewed. This was just the beginning of what we began to happen every few months. One woman found a chair sitting right in front of her bathroom window next to a giant pile of cigarette butts and beer bottles. One morning, pages of pornography papered backyards and danced in the wind around swing sets and into pools. One night, after everyone had left bags of used clothing to be picked up for donation, he emptied them, burned holes into the chests and crotches of dresses and pants, and hung them from the trees in our front yards. But he'd never tried to break in or hurt anyone. Every time a neighbor would call the cops to report this behavior, the police would say there's nothing they could do. He would have to be caught in the act, but his visits were so sporadic there's no way to know when he'd be back. Several weeks later, Dad was coming home one night after a long day at work. As he was pulling into the driveway, he came to a screeching halt. Someone was standing there. Dad was so surprised, he didn't even realize who it was, and by the time he did, it was too late to report it or try to find him, and there was no way to know when he'd return. Thud, thud, thud. Shook the walls of my sister's bedroom, which was right on the other side of the alley. She thought it was me, messing with her, pulling a prank. But when she looked in, I was still sleeping. She went slowly back into her room and it got louder. She leaned over just enough to see out into the alley and there he was, standing with her window screen in one hand and a knife in the other. Her scream woke me up, but this time the fear felt familiar, like a language of learned behavior. We exploded into the hallway and into our parents' arms again, they had heard the pounding from the other side of the house. He wasn't just watching anymore. All of the screens on the alley side windows were slashed. Others had experienced a similar disturbance and this was finally enough to get the city to install big bright lights down the alley. Bars were placed on everyone's windows and for a while he was gone. Tap, tap, tap. It was a couple years later I was watching television, laying on the same couch in the same back room where I first laid eyes on him. Tap, tap, tap. I couldn't move. My stomach turned. The sounds from the TV went mute, and all I could hear was skin on glass. Heavy breathing, heart pounding, trembling. Maybe it's the wind his hand hit harder each time, ticking like the timer on a bomb building to an explosion. Fear could only do so much to keep me from giving into this panicked curiosity by forcing myself to look to confirm it was real, that it was really him, that he was really back. Tap, 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 tap. I sat up to see him. We made eye contact for one sharp inhale before he finished turning to walk away. At least my eyes told me he walked. My brain told me he floated. He looked sicker, less human, thinner, dirtier, longer hair, like a decomposing corpse. This time I didn't run. I was supposed to be a man, but was reminded of my youth and my complete inability to get his twisted face out of my head. 
I was shaking as I woke up my dad. He called a neighbor who was comforting his crying girls. They thought the alley man was trying to get into their bedrooms. I sat quietly in the back seat as dad drove our neighbor, armed with a baseball bat, up and down the streets looking for him. They had called the police who were also patrolling. I thought back to the summer of our first encounter. That next morning, my sister and I, as curious as we were afraid, walked around the front of the street to the end of the alley. We looked down to see a man putting something in a dumpster. It surely wasn't the alley man, but in, at the time, in our young minds, it was. He was so far down the alley, I couldn't even make out what I was seeing, just a big, dark, shadowy figure. So that is what I started looking for. But dad slammed on the brakes and our neighbor jumped out of the front seat, chasing the real alley man into the black shade of the giant trees that lined the sidewalk. We waited, ready to help or run or call the cops again, until our neighbor returned, alone, out of breath and disoriented. He said, I know this sounds crazy, but I swear to God he just disappeared, vanished right in front of me. Maybe he had floated away from my window. I grabbed Dad's hand. He squeezed. I let go. Be a man. Dad bent down and said, he's gone now. Let's go home. We'll take care of it tomorrow. And again, I believed him. Mom still credits the next block meeting as one of the most surreal things she's ever experienced. Kids weren't allowed at this one. Once sane, polite members of upper-middle-class suburbia were reduced to scared villagers in the wake of a witch hunt, it was quiet until someone suggested starting a neighborhood watch. There was a gentle buzz of acceptance until a man shouted, Let's just kill him! Which started a back-and-forth between bold threats and level-headed reasoning. They eventually settled down and accepted that the police had done all they were able to do. The parents saw no other way. The plan was to buy guns, sit on the roofs in shifts until he returned, and then shoot him, dead or alive. Bang, 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 was the sound of the gavel on the bench during the alley man's trial. Before anyone had a chance to shoot him, he was arrested. He had established enough of a pattern, and when the cops caught wind of the plan, they decided to be around more than usual. Finally, something was done. The trial was fairly uneventful. A man who dad worked with was on the jury. The alley man had gone to high school with a woman down the street. He was the valedictorian of their class and apparently had a schizophrenic break in college. This mentally ill, supposedly medicated man lived over an hour away and was driving into town on random nights with no discernible pattern, parking at the church down the street. As the trial ended and the alley man was escorted out of the courtroom, his last words were, you think you've won, but this isn't over. Most of the charges were dropped due to lack of evidence. He was eventually released, but he never came back. In a way, he never left. I didn't hear about the block meeting or the trial or his past until years later. Our parents always tried to play it off hoping each incident would be the last. My sister and I were never given updates unless we asked. Some sort of selective amnesia allowed us to get through our youth without being constantly terrified. 
but we always made sure that doors and windows were locked. We jumped whenever branches brushed the glass or if animals trashed the alley. Even now I can't sleep unless my blinds are closed. Every childhood has a boogeyman. Mine just happened to be real. They told me his name. Ladies and gentlemen, Mount Chris Tyler and Ryan Hicks! That was Ryan Hicks, everybody, and that story remains to this day one of my very favorites to ever grace our stage, and just in time to remind us that the spooky season is just around the corner, and not everything that's a nightmare is made up. Okay, next up, who is this little jerk coming up next? Oh, Justin Hudnall. Oh, shoot, that's me. That's me, doing a little ditty I call Black Hole. I hope you like it. At a raw hour of the early morning in a San Diego suburb, under streetlights the color of an alcoholic's urine stands a 22-year-old man wearing nothing but boxer shorts and holding a baseball bat. He's standing there because he has heard a sound, the scratching of an animal, the echo of a cough, the note of a chain ringing against a flagpole that doesn't ever have a name, really. Inside the apartment complex, right behind him, waits his naked and bewildered girlfriend, whose body he has just rudely exited mid-coitus. But she is less surprised than she is irritated, because this is the third time something like this has happened in as many weeks. And very soon she will accuse him of being more interested in fighting than in fucking. And she is right, and that is awkward. Actually, no, she's only half right. Uh, he would love to have sex with her all the time, if possible. She is young and fit and bright and a redhead and mostly Jewish, which is to say unencumbered by the sexual hang-ups of a Christian upbringing. The problem <laughs> is not with her. He has lost the ability to lose himself in the moment, and this includes during sex, where the consequences are very starkly apparent. But that's not to say he can't get it up. No, no. That shit would be merciful. What's happening here is much more mm, complicated. Uh, he is already, let's say, committed to the act. Yes. Mm. When a nameless anxiety spreads like a glass of spilled ice water down his back. The fight or flight impulse triggers. His heart begins to race, and then his cock collapses inside of her like a bug on a windshield. And then one of them has to think of something to say. And it is never the right thing. So, after a couple of rounds of going through this, he has graduated from merely fantasizing about charging out into the night after the things that startle him to actually doing it, except everything startles him, especially things that are not there. And he tries to explain this to her, but his vocabulary, it's limited by ignorance of his condition, but mostly shame. And she tries to understand as best she can, but no one likes being rejected so forcefully, especially not a 22-year-old girl and only by her third sexual partner. But it doesn't matter. None of this matters because he is convinced one day the sound he hears is going to belong to something that actually does need killing, and he's going to be ready for it because, you see... 
erections have to be sacrificed sometimes for the greater good. It's all going to be worth it in the end. You're all going to see. So talking about yourself in the third person is a device of cowards. <laughs> it's a dissociative trick that allows both the confessor and his lovely audience a, uh, a conceit that the person that they're talking about is not actually a party to the conversation when clearly they are. And we appreciate this because it's polite, and I was raised to value politeness, and truly, truly, I do, but it has done me a disservice over the years. It has allowed friends and family a, a context for pretending that nothing is wrong when clearly there was. And so what happens in some cases was uh, we just saw less and less of each other over time, and in some cases, not at all. But there were exceptions. The, the girlfriend that I mentioned earlier, for instance, she made me promise when we broke up to go see a therapist. And seven years later, I finally kept my word. <laughs> and he was the kind of shrink whose receptionists have to sit behind protective glass, which is not a very flattering condition of speaking to someone. And the walls were all adorned with plaques and degrees. And he must have earned every friggin' one of them because it only took me about five minutes to start talking before he interrupted me and diagnosed me with PTSD. He didn't bother even asking me why it had taken me so long to come in. He just said, oh, yeah, no, you've probably been suffering from some of these symptoms from quite a while now, haven't you? Which is really not a question, is it? Get it? <laughs> But it didn't need to be at all. The, uh, the bout with impotence went away shortly after it began. Don't fret. Otherwise, I would have been in there years sooner. Boys and their toys, you know what I mean? Knock on wood again. Get it? Uh, <laughs> but in its place came this whole host of ticks and foibles, many of which are still with me today. For instance, there's a recurring dream where I'm fighting for my life, and just as I'm about to hit or kick back, I start moving in slow motion. And then right there at the moment of impact, I wake up. Sometimes just in time to see my cat go flying through the air like a stuffed animal. And Lana, it turns out, does not land on her feet when she's been asleep. The night terrors were brought to my attention by another, now, ex-girlfriend. Uh, when I woke up in the early dawn moments when it was still dark out to her crying hysterically and went, oh, fuck, what's wrong? What's wrong? She said I had had my eyes wide open, staring at her and screaming at the top of my lungs, why don't you have a fucking opinion about anything? <laughs> There's knives under my pillows now. There's knives in the drawer beside my bed, knives in my car. Just to mix things up, there's a lead pipe I have stowed in the driver's side seat back pocket. All of this because of one night when I really desperately wished I'd had a weapon, and I did not. At 25, I discovered that I had a hidden Narnia of repressed emotions inside of me that could come flooding forth if I'd been drinking and the right trigger was present. And a trigger can be many, many, many things, but never the same thing twice. But the worst is what science calls, with fantastic succinctness, intrusive thoughts. 
And these are like little flashbulbs going off that illuminate moments of shame or horror or guilt with such a, a vivid suddenness that I still snap my head to one side as though I could actually look away. And sometimes this little Tourette's-ish sound will come forth like a whimper or a moan or a burst of profanity like, fuck, fuck, fuck! I have a very, very clear vision of what I'm going to look like if I ever become homeless. And that is a very real concern of mine, that life is just going to stop moving forward altogether and just devolve into this repetitive series of vignettes from my past because there's only one reliable context when life is allowed to just be. And those are emergencies because I am really good at emergencies. I am fucking great at emergencies. I'm like a surgeon whose hands only stop shaking when he's actually in the operating room. And it's because I've been told I disassociate, which is a horrible quality in a lover or a friend or a son, but it's a fantastic one in a soldier or an aid worker, which is what I eventually became. Just living that life, racking up interest on a credit card that I was terrified of ever paying off. And that's how you get all those ticks. Just doing the sorts of things you do when there's a story you don't know how to tell. Denial's the easy excuse for why it took me so long to come in, but it's not true. Well, okay, it's a little bit true. But the real reason was guilt, because admitting that I was fucked up felt like I was sh stealing medals off of a better man's chest. This is a game that's easy to play when you're familiar with catastrophes, because it's easy to know someone who always had it worse for you. For instance, let's play. You saw someone get shot, at least you didn't get shot. If you did get shot, at least you didn't get blown up. And if you did get blown up, well, at least you're not dead. And let's just hope the dead are not so hard on themselves. <laughs> that's the silver lining I'm shooting for here. but. For the time being, at least, I'm not dead, and my body has very few scars on it that I didn't make for myself out of tattoos because someone else always caught the beating or the brick or the bullet. Someone else always failed in the attempt to resuscitate, and of every great unpleasantness in my life, all I did was witness quietly, more often than not, like a ghost. And that's the worst thing that ever happened to me. I just kept getting lucky. I haven't explicitly wanted to go and die over it, but it's made me feel really shitty for being alive. And when you lack the capacity for suicide, the lengths you go to to end it are just bound by your incompetence. And I call them adventures. Each one motivated by maybe the next time I'd get it right. So late at night, in the middle of an unpaved street in a place where there are no street lights stands a 28-year-old man. He's a little worse for wear now. He has a hole in his left eye. And from his perspective, it looks like a little ball of nothing dancing just off center. And so to, to distract himself from the inconveniences causes, he makes a little game out of it wherein he can disappear objects into his hole. Uh, for instance, he can make a partial eclipse of the sun for himself whenever he wants. And the reason he's standing there is because in front of him is a man, drunk, holding a machete, laughing and beckoning him to come closer. And the only safety is on the other side of that man. So even a dog knows not to turn tail and run when threatened, right? So what he does is he focuses just off center. He disappears the man into the hole. And he starts walking. And it works. He makes it. You see how far he's come? He can make a man with a machete disappear. A memory can't be far behind, right? It's all going to be worth it one day. You'll see. Thank you.
That was me, myself, Justin Hudnall. That story will hopefully wind up in a book I've been writing that's due out sometime between now and before the sun explodes. Third and final on the show today, this next number is called Lake Murray Cattails by the wonderful Felix Flanders. Enjoy! I'd walked home alone that day, and my hands were sticky from oranges I'd stolen and eaten on the way. I came up the cement steps and unlocked the paint chip door. I just tossed my bag down when I heard my godmother, Elena's voice. Have you been driving her? I will not allow you to do that. I'll take her away from here before I'll let you do that. I could feel heat in my cheeks and my chest was tight. I stared at her and she stared back at me, resolute. No, 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 I didn't. I was lying. Even after weeks of practice, it still did not come naturally. The person I was driving was my godsister, Alicia. We'd grown closer that year, sharing a tiny bedroom in a hot La Mesa apartment. Our families had hit some hard times with my dad unemployed and Elena newly divorced. So our parents decided to combine resources and move us all in together. It wasn't good for me. Back in Colorado, I had been a sophomore, blossoming into a content little theater geek. I'd also been receiving thrilling boob touches from my cello-playing boyfriend. <laughs> Still, I could sense the anxiety that followed my parents around like a saggy birthday balloon. I wasn't so blinded by teenage self-absorption that I couldn't attempt to accept their decision. I realize now just how desperate they were. We tried to make a big deal about the tepid pool in front of the dark wood-paneled, cramped apartment. We can hang out here and stay cool. Yeah, it'll be really nice. Alicia and I were slightly intimidated by each other. She was dyslexic and so mostly not interested in school, but respected my comparative studiousness. I'd only recently had my first kiss via the boob toucher and was fascinated by high school romance. Alicia went through boyfriends like Kleenex, and I, I admired how quickly she would write herself after a breakup. One day, I was in our room studying when I heard soft voices in our armpit-sized kitchen. I sidled up to the door and heard my mom coming through, but muted. What are you going to do? Elena replied. I'm not letting her walk home from school anymore. I'll bring her back to work with me every day if I have to. Don't you think that will just make her want to see her more? I don't know. I just, I, I can't let her think it's okay. What? Her? Maybe that's why I hadn't heard a romance bulletin for a while. Well, I don't think she's really gay. I think she's just messing around. That's not an option. Not if she's living with me. This was a side of my godmother I'd hoped wasn't real. I knew Elena went to a conservative church a church which had strongly advised against her divorce. But now a curtain had been pulled back, and I was certain there was a homophobic Wizard of Oz operating part of my godmother's mind. <laughs> but she babysat me as a child. She was the one who taught me how to cook Mexican rice correctly. She sang us gospel songs at Christmas. She told me Wuthering Heights from memory. She had been my mother's best friend since middle school. I love her. My parents were liberal types, and I'd never heard them say anything really negative about homosexuality. Being gay seemed urbane and groovy to me. 
I was shocked to hear my semi-progressive mother tacitly accept what Elena was saying. I'd been studying civil rights in my first real U.S. history class. This was not just. Now, fueled with the angst of a semi-privileged youth who didn't have many friends yet, but did have lots of time, I sat in our room and waited for Alicia to come home. She was with her church youth group, one of the few remnants of her pre-La Mesa life that she still took part in regularly. As soon as she got home, I heard frantic, muffled whispering between her and her mother. Did you think I was stupid? Of course they tell me. The whole church knows why she was kicked out. You're not going to whatever me when I send you to some church in Iowa, and you know I can. Oh, please, you don't love her. You're not even 16. Fast steps approached, and I backed up just in time to not get my nose whacked as Alicia threw open the door and flew onto the bed, chest heaving. I don't care what she says. I sat down carefully. I was listening. Your mom is messed up. Neither of us has a car, and she got kicked out of youth group. We don't go to the same school. How am I going to see her? Well, you know, my dad has been saying I should practice driving to school some of the time. Does your mom know we have half days on Wednesdays? No, she doesn't. Neither of us had ever been to Lake Murray Park. The day before, we'd looked it up on MapQuest. <laughs> and carefully calculated the amount of time we'd have to get there and come back before anyone noticed. We knew our parents wouldn't come here. This was a part of the new neighborhood they didn't have time to discover. I jerked the grungy Subaru into the old dirt parking lot by the baseball fields. Alicia strained, looking. Neither of us had cell phones, but she'd been assured by a friend that Alex had received her correspondence. <laughs> we kept scanning. Then we saw her, waiting her bulky jacket silhouetted in the afternoon sun, cattail fluff drifted in the air, her messy ponytail strands stuck to the sweat on her neck. I'd barely parked it when Alicia leapt out of the car. Alex opened her arms to receive the slam of Alicia's body. They awkwardly pulled apart and shuffled their converse in the dust. I tried to stand apart to give them some space, but I couldn't bring myself to go far enough away that I couldn't see them. I wanted evidence that it had been worth it. Just how bad did they want to see each other? Perform your love, please. <laughs> then Alicia turned to Alex and asked, will you give me a piggyback ride? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so I watched them. Alex lugging Alicia, Alicia gripping Alex weakly with her knees, her butt sagging down the shadow of their bodies making a sort of deformed pea shape. <laughs> they kissed chastely, murmured to each other. It was worth it. I kept pushing my anxiety away for maybe two hours, but by the time 3 p.m. rolled around, I was almost physically shaking. I waved at them, and they leaned in closer, then broke apart. We waved as we drove off, and Alex nodded back at us, hands in her pockets. We kept up the ruse for the next four weeks, I started bringing books so I could pretend to study instead of just pace nervously <laughs> while they lay hidden amongst the cattails. I'd walk over loudly around 3 p.m. and call out, and they'd pop up, red-cheeked and rumpled. Until the Thursday I came to the apartment. I was still rubbing the dust that I'd caught on my orange juice sticky hands. 
Alicia had been picked up by one of the church parents that day. And Elena was waiting for me. I still don't know what, pick, what, what tipped her off. No, 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 I didn't. Finally, she said, I hope you're telling the truth. Because you need to know this is not your business. I will do whatever I need to do to protect my daughter. She released me from her gaze and left the house. I leaned my whole body against the wall and tried to quiet the buzzing in my temple. Will Elena stop talking to me forever if she finds out for sure? Will I get to be friends with Alicia? Will my mom be mad at me for sticking myself in the middle of this? Why aren't my parents saying anything? Will Alicia and Alex be depressed forever if I stop driving them? Will I be able to stand myself if I stop? Will my whole family be mad at me? Do Alicia and Alex love each other enough for me to deal with my whole family being mad at me? I couldn't stop spinning. I was sitting on the linoleum floor of the kitchen, zoned out looking at my purple toe socks when Alicia finally came home. What is it? I just, I can't. Your mom, your mom talked to me today. She asked me if I'd been driving you to see Alex. Her eyes widened. I didn't tell her anything. I said I didn't know what she was talking about, but Alicia, I can't have your mom hate me. I can't. I can't drive you anymore. She didn't say anything. She just put her bag down and walked to the tiny porch overlooking the parking lot, closing the glass door behind her. My eyes started stinging, but I squeezed them shut. I felt like I'd be some phony asshole if I let myself cry. I wasn't being blocked from seeing someone I loved. At least I wouldn't try to get her to feel sorry for me. After a half hour, I walked softly to the door and knocked, holding a glass of ice water and some tissues. She opened the door and took them. I get it, she said, and closed the door. I felt gutless, realizing I was not, in fact, the flying eagle of justice I'd hoped I was. I was the mouse in its claw, looking down. For 12 years, no one mentioned it. Not Alicia, not Elena, not my parents, not me. It was like some lost dream in the group's consciousness. It wasn't until Alicia had a baby last year that I thought of it at all. The father didn't seem to be a steady guy, and most of us were worried. But not her mom. Elena told me over the phone, it doesn't matter if the dad stays around or not. We'll love this baby. I was so happy to hear her say that and also confused. Why is it so easy for her to accept this baby but not accept that relationship all those years ago. There was so much more to the story than I knew. She was, she was dealing with shit I really did not get. But not everything was dangerous. Would our relationship have come out the other side if I told her? I don't know. But I wish I'd tried. That is our show, part two of Neighborhood Watch. You heard from Ryan Hicks, Felix Flanders, and myself, Justin Hudnall. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Joe Hudick is our community coordinator. Brent Hanafy is our communications manager. And Jennifer Corley is program director. All the music you've heard today is from Kirk Conan of AM FM Music, except for our exit track, Blue Little, 
graciously loaned to us by the artist known as 1032. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Prebis Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. We would love to have you as one of those members. Just go on over to sosayweallonline.com support and help us out with a one-time or recurring donation. There's a whole host of bennies coming your way if you do, including the new option coming up soon to read these credits and sweet member parties like the one we had last Saturday. Not to stoke your FOMO, but it was dope. Thanks so much for listening. The reader completes the writer, and so let's talk again soon.